Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Welcome to Trauma Trial and Transformation. Coming to you this evening from a gorgeous sunset in Los Angeles. You know, after chatting with uh, my guest a few days ago, or maybe about a week or so ago, I could tell she's a very strong advocate and very protective of her clients. So I was super excited that she agreed to come with me, chat with me this evening. She's got more than 15 years of litigation experience, a very successful trial attorney specializing in all types of complex, high conflict divorces where Resolutions can be really almost impossible. She handles difficult spouses, spouses who are mentally unstable, vindictive, irrational. She's deeply passionate about protecting the afraid, the harassed, and the threatened, which I'm very much looking forward to talking about tonight. She has a background in psychology, crisis counseling, and special education that I just feel really gave you know her a unique perspective and insight into her client's fear and the Games that others, you know, prolong to, to complicate divorce issues. And her experience allows her to blend, you know, a legal and psychological expertise to successfully resolve some of the really tough cases. So I want to welcome Robin Jenny of Heart and Jenny. Well, welcome, Robin. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So law firm up in the East Bay, San Francisco East Bay, is that correct? Yes, Oakland. Oakland. Excellent. So how long have you had the law firm? We actually just opened last year during COVID, May of last year is when we officially formed. So it's it's been an interesting ride. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about here just how uh, I know you didn't just start last year, <laughs> according to everything. Right, yeah. This firm, yeah. <laughs> so what got you into this arena? Into family law in general or into the really high conflict areas? High conflict area. When I was in college thinking that I was going to uh, pursue my passion in college, which was to profile serial killers, which is how I went into studying psychology to begin with. Wow. Part of the going towards my degree, which I did not actually get my degree. I am one statistics class away from getting my psychology degree before I decided to go to law school. But as part of those classes, I was a crisis counselor that worked with a lot of domestic violence victims, a lot of rape crisis centers, a lot of child protective services with Metro Police. So when anything really terrible happened, in where I was living at the time in Las Vegas, there was a group of people that they would call to sort of meet with victims of, of violence in some way, whether it was sexual violence or a home break in, whatever. And through that, I got a lot of experience with the victim side and how the 
how person how a person has been victimized not only by the incident that happened, but then by going to the hospital, by dealing with the district attorneys, by trying to get some sort of closure or vindication or even just to be heard in many instances. So a lot of dealing with the victim side of things gave me a different perspective of how people move through trauma in their own lives in the legal system. Well, that's why you're a perfect candidate for me to, to talk about this, because you are right up the alley that, you know, as we talked, you know, a few weeks ago, um, I, I just, we have so much to talk about. I, I know that we're going to continue our conversation long after this podcast, because I, it's something I've been really fascinated by is, you know, lawyers are not trained in trauma. And your background really, it was interesting to me because it was such an emotionally charged arena. You know, it's like with that background of psychology, crisis counseling, you know, I'd imagine you have multiple tools you can work with like your clients, you know, to, to help them in this pretty traumatic time in their life, correct? It is a very traumatic time in their life. Divorce is second only to the loss of a loved one. Well, it is a loss. trauma. Right. Still too. It is. Right. Because the relationship is a loved one, right? However long it takes to say goodbye to it, some people are ready to let it go and let it go very easily. And those people are traumatized by the not being able to move on. Mm-hmm. when they are ready to be done and ready to start a new chapter. And some people are traumatized by the sudden loss of a relationship that they were not ready to, to leave, that they can't move on. So when they, when they come to you, are they, what stage are they usually in or is are all different stages? What, where are they in the, in the process of this traumatic experience? My favorite clients come to me and say one of a few things. Usually they say, I know what I'm about to say is going to sound crazy. I know this is going to sound crazy, but let me just tell you my story. And, and then they proceed to tell me things that I have heard from, from so many women, mostly women, some men in that position of, you know, a history of gaslighting and emotional abuse and control and coercive control. And nobody has ever put it together for them before that, first of all, their feelings of not being validated in that relationship are, are, are valid. Right. That, that feeling invalidated is a valid feeling. Right. <laughs> Just start with that essential framework. Like, no, you're not crazy. You're, you're not crazy. Right. I mean, I, I think we probably, we've all had that relationship, I think from being kids and dating and throughout our lives that, you know, we're the ones questioning ourselves when it's really punching holes of things within ourselves that we don't even know are there. And then we're once thinking we are crazy. And I can imagine that just, that has got to be just like tenfold when in a situation like this. But I mean, you know, especially when, you know, this traumatic, I would say period of time, it's not just a traumatic event, you know, one, one event, I would imagine it's because some of them can go how long, six months, years. Oh. 10, 10 years, 20 years. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how do you, how do you work with someone that has to go through that trauma for that amount of time? There's a lot of unraveling of, of, in, of invalidation. I mean, it just, uh, I keep coming back to that word because it's so central to what, 
what happens after so many years of coercive control. And coercive control is never one thing. It's never something that you can point to and say, that thing, that one thing that he did, it's not like physical abuse where, where there's an incident where you can say, this person exploded and, and he hit me and that was when I knew. Or we had this really charged uh, verbal argument and, and he punched a wall and that's when I knew. There's never anything like that. It's the constant undermining. It's the constant, you know, assigning of blame. It's almost like going, it's like being Alice in Wonderland going through the looking glass. Yeah. And then you find yourself in Wonderland and think, how did I get here? Right. Right. Because <laughs> it's who is here with me? <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, it's, it sounds like it's much more subtle. You know, and I think a lot of people that, that deal with trauma, you know, it's not like you said, it, I mean, you're, you can say I, I had a traumatic event and a car wreck. And people say, okay, yeah, 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 you've had a traumatic event. And then you can say something like myself who lost a brother and went through most of my life trying to deal with that trauma. But, you know, no one can really say, well, what's wrong with you? And I was like, well, I, you know, I went, I'm realizing I really had a lot of trauma in my life as a kid. And, you know, I had good times too. And I had an amazing, you know, but it's like if people don't really see it or they don't know that it's that concrete thing. So working with your yeah. clients, do you just get them to like kind of think through that or walk through that? One of the first things that I try to do is empower them which is incredibly difficult in a court system that doesn't understand. First of all, it's not set up to deal with trauma in any way. Right. That's the Second, reason for the podcast. It's, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <And> start talking. <laughs> the court system is not set up to do anything quickly, efficiently, or in a way that protects anybody's emotional well-being. And, and that's not getting better anytime soon with all the talk about access to justice and everything that, that we're right. trying to do. They're making little steps, but inherently the justice system cannot give somebody the closure that they need in the way that they need it. So that falls to a series of maybe little wins. Yeah. That's always a good first step is, you know, find this, find something that the person can take a stand on and often that's either financial control or custody and get that small win just enough to say, you know, this is what I want and I'm entitled to it and getting it for them. Mm -hmm. Just that little bit, which sounds like so little, but when you've been told that you don't deserve anything, getting that, that either concession or order saying, no, actually she does have a right to that and she is going to get it, whether you want her to have it or not. Mm -hmm. That's a really good foundational step. And sometimes that's all we can get. Yeah. Gosh, so many things in my head that I, I've got a lot of questions, but I've also got all these other questions in my head that I was like, wow. But, you know, you, you talk about, you know, I, 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 picture because I have friends that have divorced and you know I, I I know people that have been divorced and the emotional toll for the long haul of just really changing their life, especially if they were losing children or losing everything they knew in their being. So to start over, do you talk to them about the future? Do you only talk about what's happening like right in front of them at the time? I try to focus 
on what I can control because Mm -hmm. the future is not something that I can control and it's not my place because I am, I, I can get them through a series of legal obstacles, whether that's going to take six months. Sometimes I have some clients I'm working with for uh, 10 years already, and we've got another four years, five years because they have kids with somebody. So sometimes I know when I'm coming in, especially with young kids that I'm on it for the long haul, but I'm not the therapist. Right. All I can say is this is what I can do for you. And it's worth the fight or it's not worth the fight. Right. But I can't help with the transformational aspects. I can put them in touch with other clients Mm -hmm. who have gone through thing so that they know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe there isn't a light at the end of the tunnel, which also is like a different support group to say, you know, you're going to be tied to this person who is a horrible person, but they're a good parent. Right. And you're, you're going to have to deal with them for 10 years. Right. So let's find a way to work that out. Right. And those are the hardest questions with, I can't do anything. I wish I could. I can't. Well, and a lot of it is, personal choice too. I mean, it's, you know, I ask a lot of my therapists and healers that come on if they think healing is a choice. I think healing's a choice. I think healing is a choice. Yeah. I think choosing to let go of something is a choice. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to do, but it's, <laughs> yeah. but there are moments you have to choose and say, I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And there's that moment of yeah. change and choice and, but, you know, you, yeah. you talk about your clients trying not to make, you know, decisions based on emotion. But, you know, I was very interested in having this, this part of the conversation with you because in your world, all right, it is a very emotionally charged, obviously, arena, like we talked about. How, and I've always found this fascinating in trial, is to try to separate emotion from fact, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, it's not in our human nature to do that when <laughs> you feel threatened and you're scared to death and you have to face your, you know, your accused, the accused. And, and, and it's like, how do you work with them on that scenario? Because it's not really a human nature kind of way to do things. It's not in our nature. Right. And my fallback is organization. And there, there are sort of two approaches that I take. One is that I understand that inherently people need to be hurt. They need to feel that their story and their perspective is being heard. Whether that's relevant to the trier of fact, to the judge that they're going in front of, is debatable. And that's always a struggle with, I understand that you think it's important that the judge hears what a horrible person that they are. Okay, I get that. And you want to tell me the story. You want to tell the judge as if you're writing like a, like a love note in high school, right? You just want to like throw it yep. all out yep. on paper. And then he said this, and then she did this, and then he did this, and we followed up, and he said, and, and all of the little minutia. And what happens is you have 10 pages. Mo- in most jurisdictions in California, you've got about 10 pages yeah. to tell your story, double-spaced. But you lose the judge after five because – as a judge who is reading through these declarations and you have to understand they're reading through 20 or 30 declarations a day, just, just for that day. Right. And it's as a human being, it's very difficult for them to read through somebody talking about 
all of the emotional toll that this person has created in another person's life and not be able to do anything about it. Right. How you get around that and how I, I try to train my clients to do is you need to give a timeline of all of the little things, mm-hmm. every little thing, because when you're talking about, again, coercive control or, or gaslighting or a lot of the, the trauma, the creating behavior in a bad relationship, it's all about the little things that add up. Mm-hmm. So I tell them, go home and make a journal because I want you to journal how much time you spend with the kids and how much the other party spends with the kids anyway. But I want you to journal every day. This is what happened today. Or today I remembered this thing that happened on this date. And when you think about that, maybe put it in an email to me so that you get it out. So you get it out of your system. Mm-hmm. So you know when somebody's looking at it, send it to me. I put it in their folder in Outlook so that when I have to put together a declaration, I've got everything. The day that it happened, what happened, why it was important, how that sort of fits in with everything else is all in chronological order and they don't have to keep it in their head. Mm-hmm. And that's what so many people do who have, who have gone through traumatic relationships is that they end up keeping everything in their head. Like, like they're holding on to this pain as if it's some sort of validation mm-hmm. or wisdom or strength but really it's just a ball and chain that's dragging them down. Well, a lot of times I would imagine it's their identity, you know, especially if you're going through it for so long, who are you without it? I mean, I think a lot of people that go through trauma, I know myself included, like I had to really ask myself, who am I without this story of trauma? You know, I don't want to, I don't want that to identify me anymore. And I would imagine that's got to be, you know, who am I without this person, this marriage, this, this exact mm-hmm. family had in my head. And then who am I yeah. now to find out who you really are as the person, which, you know, I'm sure is a big transition. Yeah. yeah. And that's so much of what happens in a tr- the trauma dynamic in a relationship. It's not the losing a parent, losing a child. It's the loss of self. Mm-hmm. And I told that your self, who you were, wasn't really great anyway. Yeah. And nobody ever wanted that person anyway. Right. Right. My sidekick here. Yeah. (laughs) So, so when you were talking about that, what came to mind for me, I got a hit that, you know, judge Judy really is probably one of the best examples of like, keep the emotion at the door. Right. Because she's really a very, like just a visual interpretation of like, I don't care. Like the, the emotion is just gone when you walk in her doors and it seems so cold. It really does. It You're just like, Oh my gosh, that, you know, yeah. and having the emotion. And I think that's also, you know, sometimes hard. I would imagine that, you know, somebody wants you to feel bad for them. Why don't you think that they want to not only just be heard and seen, but they want you to feel something. They, they want to be acknowledged as either the better person or the victim. Yeah. Often. Yeah. Not always, often. Yeah. So, you know, because I've always thought, you know, you know, one of the most powerful things that I've seen anybody do is really have the courage to step into something when they're in the middle of fear. Right. I mean, I look, I want to talk to you a little bit about domestic violence. I know you've, you've done a few cases on this as well. In a domestic violence setting, how do you make this person feel safe? 
That's really difficult because there are types of domestic violence cases. There are some cases where you can make them feel safe, you know, move to a different place, uh, if possible, uh, stay with somebody, stay with a friend, stay with, you know, a, a, a large male cousin, whatever you need to do to make yourself feel physically safe. And then cut that person out, stop communication with them, you know, block them on your cell phone, change all of your passwords, cut all ties with them if you can. Yeah. But there are some types of domestic violence where there's some serious mental health on the other side, some mental health issues uh, where there is never going to be a time where they're going to feel completely safe. Yeah. It's really about managing expectations because I tell people in sort of like the sleeping with the enemy sort of cases, right? Mm -hmm. That you're never going to not be looking over your shoulder. You're never going to feel completely safe home alone because of this person that will not give you up for whatever reason. And there are those out there and those are the hardest to deal with because you can get all the restraining orders in the world. It doesn't matter. It's just a piece of it. Well, I think that's where the emotional side can't be separated because then, you know, you've got fear involved in that. And then, you know, I mean, not even domestic violence, but just, you know, watching Jennifer Seibel Newsom up against Harvey Weinstein this week, you know, having to face that person. I mean, she came right out and said, you know, he's sitting right there staring at me. I mean, how how do you walk a client through that? Oh, yeah, because it turns out people aren't very good at facing people who have abused them in any situation. We're not wired for that. Mm-mm. It's like one of those cartoons, you know, where your body is sitting here, but everything else has already started running. It's just your body hasn't hasn't caught up with everything else that's left. Right. Know? Well, that's <laughs> yeah. that's the definition of trauma. I mean, I I have talked about multiple times uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who talks about trauma is a separation of self, and that separation of what's really happening sometimes is your protector. Right. And that's why I think trauma becomes something that starts developing because you have to separate in order to get through it. It's just, you don't want to feel, you don't want to see, you don't want to experience that. I'm just, you know, I'm always curious on that. I mean, I've been in the courtroom when there's tension, but not that kind of tension. And how do you just keep your client like together? Do you ever, do you ever like suggest like prior to them going in for anxiety, like meditation or mindful exercises or anything like pre going into to testify in the courtroom? Usually before we get to the testifying, they've, they have adopted some coping mechanism that gets them through most days. Right. Like what? Being in like either a meditation or a breathing exercise, or, you know, maybe they have like a, a tactile, rock or a totem or, or they pray, something like that, right? Okay. Like a, a something like that. And that's, that's good for like, you know, Monday through Friday, most of the time, but not for sitting in court. Yeah. You can bring those things, right? You can, you can bring your rosary, you can bring your, mm-hmm. your, your, whatever you need that comfort sometimes up on the stand with you. But what I try to tell them is two things. One, look at me. Just look at me. I don't care who's asking the question. You're talking to me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the judge will ask you a question 
They're asking you a question because they care. They're not Mm -hmm. trying to attack you. And then look back at me because we're having this conversation. It's our little world and you're not going to get distracted by him. You're not going to like make eye contact with anybody else. It's just us. And the second thing is if you get overwhelmed, it's okay to take a break. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I can't do this right now. I need a break. Mm-hmm. And we will go someplace where that other person isn't into the jury box. We'll take an early lunch. We'll go into the bathroom. We'll go down to your car, whatever you need to find that center and, and get that, the, the body and the spirit, maybe a little closer, mm-hmm. maybe not back <laughs> into the same place at the same time, but at least close enough where you, you can start to feel yourself again. So I, I love that you brought up, you know, getting grounded with your spirit, because that's, that's something too, that, you know, as I've helped work with witnesses, you know, I've always talked about their story and their stories, really them, that is their spirit. That is their being right. And how to believe in their story and believe in themselves, you know, do, do you ever work, with them in that sense of just like, this is your story, not everybody else's story, just your story. Is that what you kind of mean when you say like, talk to me? No, the, the talk to me is mostly like when you're, when you're testifying, there's sort of a tunnel vision where everything mm-hmm. else is overwhelming. And you, most people are grasping for that one thing to hold on to. Right. Just that thing. And then they'll just sort of do whatever. And I don't want that one thing that they're holding on to to be the something that makes them feel worse. Yeah. So they know me, they're comfortable with me. Let me be their anchor. Yeah. And when everything else doesn't make sense and everything else is scary, they at least know that I'm, I, I got them. I'm, I'm there. Just that's great. That, so I ground them that way. But very much, I feel like this, this story is that need for, I just, I need the judge to know. I just want the judge to know if only the judge knew. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I've, I've told my client numerous times, like the, the judge, it doesn't, it's not going to, it's not going to matter yeah. to the judge. Right. But if you want to say this, I will tee it up for you. And right. I will tell the judge, my client feels that it's important that, you know, she'd like to make a statement. And usually when you preface it like that, my mm-hmm. client feels it's important. The judge knows two things. One is this not going to be legally relevant but two is that I'm going to need, I need that. I need that space from the judge to help my client move forward. And most of the judges key in on that. Most of the, most of the good ones, <laughs> most of the ones that I've worked with a lot will also know, like when I say, like, I just need a minute for you to focus on making my client feel whole for just a little minute. Okay. Yeah. And most judges will do that. Most judges will give me that. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, cause you know, they still won't let me, you know, come in and burn sage. So I'm, you know, in the courtroom. So, <laughs> so, so getting a judge to, to just give someone that space, you know, that's judges are people too. That's what I always, I've always say to my clients and witnesses and everybody, you know, judges are people too. They do have feelings, even though they are here there for the facts, you know, they, yeah. they, most really good judges, they have hearts and they, you know, they want to make sure your witnesses are okay. They, they don't want you to sit there and struggle. I mean, I've never really seen a judge that wanted somebody to sit there and struggle. No. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. But, you know, you, I saw on your website, you, you have a term called divorce terrorism. And uh, it was actually a blog. What, what, what do you mean by that? 
So those are the divorces that there are multiple attorneys involved. Usually it starts out in a consult. Um, they're either brought into me from somebody else, like a family member, like a best friend, somebody like that saying, oh, I need you to talk to so-and-so because she's been trying to get divorced or he's been trying to get divorced for years and nothing has happened. Mm. That's typically because there is so much drama and chaos going on. And part of the divorce terrorism is the successive litigation because the litigation itself becomes the tool for harassment. Mm. And it ties up all of the property. It ties up all of the, of the attention, all of the energy, all of the assets, all of the time gets tied up in this endless series of litigation. And there is the term called a vexatious litigant that everybody says, well, you know, they've, they've filed three motions now in a year. Can't we get them labeled to be a vexatious litigant so they can't file these things? And I have to tell them most of the time, no, because they're legitimate motions. They're legitimate. So can I back up a second? Because our listeners are not going to know what a motion is. What, can you explain just a couple of those terms? When I talk about a motion in family law, when you are asking the court for some sort of relief, I'm asking for custody and a custody order that defines when the kids are with whom and who makes the decisions for how the children's time is divvied up, who makes the medical decisions, who finds the therapist, who picks them up after school, what mm -hmm. daycare the kids go to, all of those sort of sorts of the decision is one type of motion that's kind of a custody motion. There are support motions where you're asking for the other person to pay support to you for spousal support or child support, or maybe there are other costs. Maybe there's private school tuition. Maybe there's like other, anything monetary is going right. to be a, a motion for support of some kind. But the, the real, the, the, there are also other, there are motions for attorney's fees, yep. which is part of the divorce terrorism part because they'll try to, to litigate you into submission and attorney's fees motions become very important for that. And there's also property division or property motions that are sort of, I want control of the house. We need to divide this bank account. Uh, he took all of the money he needs to return it. We need to sell the house. Like anything related to personal or real property would be a property motion. Gotcha. So let's talk about the transformation side of this, this process, right? I mean, I know there's, there's always heavy stuff on the front end of our, my interviews, but I want to, I always like to talk about the healing side of it and how people can come out of, do you have, really any good stories of someone who's really gotten through it, gotten positive, you know, like actually uh, yeah. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, thrived or gotten through it easily. Well, easily <laughs> as easy as possible, no. <laughs> but they have come through it and they're doing so much better now than when I first met them. There are a couple of women that I've worked with who came in a couple of years ago, and their cases have taken about two years to finalize. And during the process, they start from, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know who I am outside of this relationship, but I can't stay in this relationship. My kids are older or younger or whatever, but I'm not feeling like being a mom and taking care of these kids is my role and my identity that's available to me any longer. But I don't trust myself either because I've always been told you're going to mess this up too. Mm. You, you can't handle the finances because you're going to mess that up. 
you're not allowed to, you know, to, to discipline the kids because you're going to mess that up because you don't want the kids to turn out as messed up as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. you, you can't have control of the money because you don't know how to spend it well. So I'm just, I'm going to manage all the money and, and don't worry, you'll be fine. Well, we're fine. I'm not going to tell you what money is there, but I'm going to tell you that you don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things that we do as part of the process is get some disclosures, right? Just get some clarity about what is actually there because she's never, and generally it's women generally, she's, she doesn't know what bank accounts exist. Yeah. Do I have a 401k? Do I have an interest in a 401k? I don't know. Do we own the house? Are we, do we have a mortgage? Is it being paid off? Do we have credit cards? Do we have debt? Most, most women are completely in the dark. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we do is say, this is what you have. Yeah. And now you know, and you can take that information and you can do whatever you want because half of it is yours. And Start let's, building. let's talk about the team and we can talk about that later. But part of this transformational process is this realization that, okay, I am good enough. Mm-hmm. I can, I can do something and not mess it up. And yeah. okay. So now I have these assets. Now I've got the security and what I see from the women is literally like a butterfly. They come mm-hmm. in sort of wrapped up in a cocoon and the cocoon starts to break apart over time. And I've seen these women coming back, you know, just getting that judgment entered. That final judgment is the thing that says, this is what you get. This is how you walk away. This is how it's closed now. This is your new life starting. This, this document when it's entered generally. Yeah. And there's yeah. some, some problems with that, but generally speaking, this is the door closing. And when the door opens after that, it's, it's, I, I see these women come in and they've started new lives. They're just have this complete energy transformation of, you know, connection and validation and wanting to, to reach out to everybody else, any other woman in that situation saying, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. There is a light at the other time. It is worth getting rid of that weight that is dragging you down. Like, yes, there is a light at the end of the end of the tunnel. I have seen that. I love that. It's, it's, a, it's a return to self-love. Oh, absolutely. It's a return to, to uh, you know, getting beat down, getting beat up, and then, you know, really finding self-love. And it's that's really... That's not always the easiest path when something is, you know, been pushed down so much. And so it's, I always thought, you know, it'd be great to have just even a witness support group. You know, we have the witness protection program, but we don't have the witness support group program. I mean, it's something that I'm hoping literally like this podcast can just start getting people to to talk to each other and come the resource so that you're not out there alone. And there's, everybody has different stories and different types of trauma and things they go through. And I just think what you're doing and the advocacy you have for your, you know, for your clients is, is really incredible. The last question I always like to ask my lawyers is, do you think that there are different forms of the truth? Different forms of the truth? I think everybody has their own truth. Interesting. And one of the discussions I have a lot with people who are dealing with individuals who are high conflict, who have a, a, a propensity to create drama in the sense that this, this person who's high conflict is also always the victim. And so it's never their fault. It's always your fault. And you've always mm-hmm. done everything wrong. And I, I have to remind whoever I'm working with is you can't fight fire with fire. You can't mm-hmm. 
call that person a liar because they, in their world, are truly the victim. Mm-hmm. They truly believe that they are the victim and they have been victimized by you. You are not going to convince them with anything you say, any amount of logic or reason or facts or pictures or declarations or court orders is never going to change their fundamental truth that they have been wronged by you mm-hmm. and you must pay. Right. And, and you can't change that because it is true for them just as much as it is true for my client that none of the stuff that they just said actually right. happened. Right. <laughs> so stick with, so you're basically, if that, it kind of sounds like the advice you would give somebody is stick to your own truth, stick to your own truth, stick Absolutely. to what you know is true within yourself. And then the rest just kind of comes with it. Cause I, I think that's great advice to somebody that, you know, I want to, I want to put it out there to, you know, spread the love to, you know, people that go through this. I, I know it's, like I said, I've seen friends and family and people that have gone through this and it's, it's a tough process and support systems I think are just so important. And that's why I'm hoping that, you know, somebody gets through it, they can heal and work their way through it in ways that, you know, I, I find healing in so many different forms of food, music, chiropractic, meditation, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, um, I just, I just hope that yeah. people that you work with can really find that happiness afterwards and move on. So I'm glad to hear you've got some great stories. So we got to wrap up here. Can you uh, tell us where people can find you? And you've got a couple multiple areas of practice. Uh, what's a good, what's a good way for people to find you? So we are in downtown Oakland. I, I practice primarily in Alameda County and Contra Costa County. But I also consult on these types of cases all over California and all over the country. When somebody is dealing with an intractable opposing counsel or opposing party, most of the opposing party, and they're at that point where the attorney is saying, I've never had a case like this. I've never had to deal with a case like this before. And I don't know the psychology behind it. I don't know why they're doing or how we get to the next step. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of consulting on let's talk about the game that's being played here. Mm-hmm. And how you can change the rules of the game. Because there's not a lot of people who do that. And I find it fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, that's why it's, you've got such a great background, especially with your, with your other uh, your psychology and crisis management. I mean, that's, that's got to be such a huge tool. So, Well, Robin, I really, really am grateful that you spent some time with me this evening. And uh, I want to thank your cat as well for coming in and saying hello to us. I'm a big believer that spirits come in all packages and that one just wanted to say hello. So thanks again. And hopefully at one point we'll have you back. And I just want to sign off. I want to tell everybody to get out there, spread some love. It's going to be the holiday season here soon. And we're signing off from Los Angeles, California. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.